But the whey protein, which is the most common protein supplement, is from milk. You heard about eating your curds and whey. Well, the whey is the protein part. That used to be a waste product, by the way, in the dairy industry until they found something to do with it. Hi, and welcome to the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast. I'm Tom, and I'll be your host as I share what I'm doing in my daily life to solve my type 2 diabetes. Listen in as I share the food, movement, and tools that I'm using each day. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. For a full transcript or to follow the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast on social media, please head over to solvingtype2diabetes.com for all those links and more. Now, on to the show. Well, thank you very much for joining me here for another episode. I hope that this podcast, the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast, is helpful to you. I hope you find it interesting. So, let's look at my week in review. This past week, I was camping with an extended group of family for about a week, and we were up at Promised Land State Park. That's in northeastern Pennsylvania, in the Pocono Mountains area. And this state park has many different sections. It has tent camping, primitive tent camping. It has full hookup, RV camping. It also has some cabins. And our family group is large enough that we utilize about seven or eight cabins. We also have about eight or 10 tent camping sites. So we're a large group. My wife's family has been doing this since she was a small child. So that's several decades now. And it keeps growing each year as our number of family members increase each year. So now it's not only still her mother, who is the longest camper, but all of her siblings, their spouses, their children, their spouses, their grandchildren. So a lot of people, and in fact, a few great-grandchildren, if I'm doing the math correctly. But a lot of people are there. Some people stay for the weekend. Some people come and go as they're able, if they live close by. And we were able to go for the full week, so that was really enjoyable. We were in a cabin in an area called Bear Wallow Cabins, And I'll tell you, that was appropriately named for this week. I actually saw a bear. At one point, there was a fairly large black bear, an adult, who was only separated from me by a screen door on the cabin. I was sitting in a chair inside the cabin, and I looked up at the door. I heard something. I looked up at the door, and there was a bear looking back at me on the other side of a screen door. Well, luckily, the bear was not interested at all. And as soon as it turned around, I went and grabbed my phone, took a few pictures, and got got some pictures with it only still about, I don't know, 8 or 10 feet away from the cabin. So that was an interesting experience. There was certainly a lot of wildlife up there. Deer, saw deer, several deer, fawns, adult deer, every day. And only saw the one bear up close. We did see another bear in passing, but that was not right up with us. So it was a great week of camping and got in some good walks and I really enjoyed time there with the family and had a lot of fun. 
Let's take a look at my numbers for this week. Now I was able to close my rings five out of seven days. Honestly, I probably closed them seven out of seven days, but I found that I had to charge my phone at least twice a day and my watch as well at least twice a day. So it was off for several hours at a time, twice a day, because there's really no signal up there for cellular. There's certainly no Wi-Fi. So it was constantly searching for signals. Now I could have put it on airplane mode, I just didn't bother. Anyway, long story short, close the rings on the watch five of seven days. My seven day average glucose reading was 118. And that's within a good range. As you know, I have stopped the Farsiga medication many months ago, also stopped metformin, and now I'm just taking them on Jaro. So 118 with just that medication, I'll be happy with that. Body fat percentage is holding steady at 21%. And that's not quite my goal, but I'll tell you what, it's certainly better than it has been years past. My macro average for the week of camping, I averaged 82 grams of carbs each day over the past week, and I averaged 130 grams of protein each day. And the only carbs I had most days, I would say, were my low-carb wraps, the only bread-type carbs. I tried to stay away from sweets, that type of thing. I did bring some protein supplementation, and that's our topic for today, by the way. Later on, we're going to be talking about protein supplementation. I'm going to take a minute here just to pause and ask you a favor. This would really mean a lot to me if you could help me here. Could you please share this episode? Just send a link to this episode to somebody that you care about. Someone you might know who has type 2 diabetes or maybe pre-diabetes. Someone who's interested in, in health and nutrition and things like that. If you could please share this episode, that would really help me a lot. Thanks. For my Manjaro update this week, it's really just the same stuff, a different day. I'm still on the 7.5 milligram dose. That seems to be doing a great job for me. The positive effects are holding fast in that my insulin control is great. If I do eat something that has quite a few carbs in it, the blood sugar does go up as it does with all people, but then as it does with healthy people, it comes right back down. So as you saw, my average there was 118 for the week, and that is totally acceptable. That is below the pre-diabetes range. So I used to have blood sugars in the 200s, 300s, things like that. So the fact that now it's, it's averaging where it is, I'm very happy with that. So Manjaro update is about the same as it was last week, but that's okay. Good things can keep coming. For my challenge and win this week, it was the camping. So we did have a nice refrigerator in the cabin, so that made it a little bit easier. But we were eating with other folks and I had to pick and choose. A lot of the meals revolved around breads or hamburger rolls, hot dog rolls, potatoes, chips, rice, things like that. So I had to just watch my portions. I did have some Funyuns. One of the meals we like is called Can Can Chicken. And what this is, is basically a can of chicken breast meat, a can of cream of celery soup, a can of cream of chicken soup, and then some instant rice. And that all gets added together, heated up, and it's called Can Can Chicken in our family because it comes all out of cans. Well, except for the rice. 
that comes out of a box. But regardless, it's good. But the way it's served in our family is with the a snack called Funyun. And it's supposed to be some type of onion ring, but it's just a highly processed, engineered product that is in the shape of an onion ring, but it's just made out of flour and sugar and salt and fat, things like that. So it's sort of like, I'm going to say it's closest to a Pringle in that it's highly processed, but it's shaped like an onion ring, if that makes any sense. Sort of fried and puffed up like an onion ring. Anyway, I had to limit myself just to a single portion of that, even though they're tasty and they're designed and engineered to be highly consumable, highly palatable, but I just did limit myself to one serving, and that was sort of like my one splurge for the week, if you will. And of course, that meal has rice in it, so I limited that serving as well. Tried to get some more chunks of chicken in there and, and, and fewer pieces of rice. But anyway, that's how I did it, and it worked out for me, so I'm going to call that a win. Let's take a look at the news. Some articles I picked out for you. The first one is entitled, Review Links Statins to Insulin Resistance and Diabetes. So they did a systematic review of different studies looking at statins, which people use for lowering cholesterol. And they found here that it is, while beneficial from that, it's also associated with an increased risk of insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. So what they're saying here is that they found in looking at four studies that uh, people who were taking the statins had a increased fasting glucose level, uh, an increased A1C, and an overall fasting insulin level. And that was linked to people taking these statins. Now, they didn't say that taking statins caused it. It could be, for example, that someone who has to take a statin might be also someone who does not eat in a way that's helpful to them, or maybe does not get a lot of movement. So they're not saying that because you take a statin, you're going to have an increased risk for insulin resistance and then type 2 diabetes. It's just saying that those people who do happen to take a statin also tend to more frequently get insulin resistance and diabetes. So that's a, a correlation. They have not proven, nor I don't think did they attempt to prove, any type of causality. That's important to remember when looking at these studies. The next article here it says, doctor shares three signs of type 2 diabetes that could show up before a diagnosis. So these are things that you could see, symptoms you could see, that you might see actually before you get a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. And this article here is a video mostly, but you know, things like tingling or neuropathy in your feet, sometimes in your hands. Also, they're calling here on, oh, this is one we've heard about before, frequent urination, having to go to the bathroom almost constantly, things like that. And also wounds or sores that seem to take longer to heal. But this is a good, interesting video here. The link is going to be in the show notes, as always, of course. And so you can look at that. But, you know, it's, it says that these types of signs and symptoms can show up even before you have a formal diagnosis of type 2 diabetes because 
Many people who maybe don't go to their doctor that frequently also don't normally have their blood sugar levels tested, and therefore you can get these symptoms without having that initial diagnosis. That might cause you then to go get that diagnosis. All right, let's look at this third one here. It says, exercising later in the day helps better control blood sugar levels. Now they say this is a causality here. And we all know that movement, we say movement, but exercise is really a key part of managing your type 2 diabetes. And it says that if you exercise later in the day, and this has to do with timing, with when you eat, timing with when you exercise, but they say later in the day, they have done these studies here that show that you get the strongest reduction in your A1C if you exercise late afternoon. Now, they don't say exactly why, but they do show that, it does say that in this study here. So, I don't know. To me, the most important thing is to exercise when you can. Because if you wait to say, oh, I'm going to exercise at 4 p.m. every day. Well, something could come about. If you maybe have something running late or something pops up, that you don't get to exercise at 4 p.m., where you could have actually done it at 9 or 10 a.m., and really you should have. is When you get the chance to exercise or get in your movement, do it. Because doing it at any time is certainly better than not doing it at a specific time. This last article here is called Study on Type 2 Diabetes and Weight Loss Finds Intermittent Fasting Beats Cutting Calories. Now, I can't advocate intermittent fasting. I can't advocate cutting calories. You know, what you eat, how much you eat, when you eat is very much an individual decision for yourself with your healthcare professionals. But this study did compare just general cutting calories with intermittent fasting. The people who were put on the intermittent fasting group were only given a few hours each day in which to eat. They were not necessarily given a calorie restriction during that time. Basically, they could eat whatever they wanted and just during that, it looks like here, an eight-hour period. So they only had an eight-hour period each day that they could eat and they could have whatever they wanted during that time and maybe they didn't even track what they were eating. Now, it doesn't even look like they tracked when they were eating. So they did say that those people lost more than the people just cutting calories. But then if you read here, it says the people cutting calories only cut 200 calories per day. Well, I mean, that's within the rounding error. That's, to me, that's not restrictive. I don't know. So you pick and choose the way that works best for you. You can read this article. You might find it interesting, might find it helpful. All right, let's take a look at the main topic for today. As I mentioned last week, I wanted to talk about protein supplements. And what's the value of the protein supplements in solving type 2 diabetes? Well, for me, for myself personally, and that's really all I can speak to, but for me, it's a quick and easy way to get in those protein goals that I have. It does not involve cooking, does not involve meal prep of any sort, and I happen to use a little protein shake, once in a while a protein bar, or even if I get a treat, it's with a high-protein, low-net-carb treat. So for me, it's convenience. I have a goal. 
I have a goal getting in around 130, 140 grams of protein each day. And I want to do that because I want to try and avoid muscle loss. And if I would do some weight training, maybe even get a little bit of muscle gain, that would be good. So these are really not my recommendations here for you. It's just generally available information through internet searching. When I quote unquote look something up, I'm Googling. So this is just a summary of things that are generally available on the internet. So protein supplements are dietary supplements that contain naturally high levels of protein. And they're commonly used to increase protein intake in the daily diet especially sometimes athletes, bodybuilders, people that have certain protein requirements like myself due to health conditions or goals. That's me. So I found seven key pieces of information that you maybe are interested in knowing about protein supplements. The first one is, well, what are the protein requirements? It's generally accepted that protein is an essential macronutrient the other macronutrients are fat and carbohydrates. But protein's an essential macronutrient required for various bodily functions. Now, by essential, it means your body does not produce it. You must consume protein. So why? Why do you consume it? Well, it gives you muscle growth, repair your muscles, maintenance of your muscles. Well, how much do you need? Well, the recommended daily amount of protein can vary depending on you, your gender, your weight, your activity level. Basically, the general consensus is somewhere between eight-tenths of a gram per kilogram, or that's about four-tenths of a gram per pound, all the way up to 2.2 grams per kilogram, or about one gram per pound. So let's say you weigh, I don't know, 180 pounds. Well, then that would be, at the high end, 180 grams of protein. At the low end, well, that would be about 100 or 90 or 80, somewhere in that range. So you can see there's a wide range of what's the recommended amount. Are you working out? Are you weight training? Are you a growing teen? Are you someone who's going through some type of medical issue? All these things are why it makes it a very individual decision because 0.8 grams per kilogram all the way up to 2.2 grams per kilogram, that's a pretty wide range. The second reason for protein supplements are convenience. And this is what I mentioned for myself. This is basically why I do it. These protein supplements provide a convenient, quick access to the increased protein without any need for cooking or meal prep. They can be powders, bars, shakes, and it's easy to consume. You can take them often when you travel, when you're not in a refrigerated or stove prep kitchen. You can have these things with you, and it just makes it easy. A third one is the quality. The protein quality in these supplements are often very high, good, bioavailable protein sources. And bioavailable means that they're good for converting into muscle and things like that in your body. They're, they're highly used. So they could be whey or casein, both from milk, or it could be soy or pea protein, other types of protein. It's these sources with high biological values. In other words, they contain all of the essential amino acids. Again, essential means your body doesn't produce these amino acids. It needs to be consumed. There's some amino acids that your body can actually produce, but the essential amino acids are ones that you must take in. 
The fourth reason is to support muscle recovery and growth. And athletes often use these. They have a pre-workout, they have a post-workout. Sometimes they have this really down to a science where they have different ratios of proteins to carbohydrates, things like that. But the whey protein, which is the most common protein supplement, is from milk. You heard about eating your curds and whey. Well, the whey is the protein part. That used to be a waste product, by the way, in the dairy industry until they found something to do with it. It's easily digestible. So you've just been through a hard workout. It's quickly absorbed in the body, easy to digest, and it gives you that concentrated source of amino acids to start rebuilding and repairing what you just broke down during your workout. The fifth reason that I found here is weight management. It says that increasing your protein intake through these supplements can be beneficial for weight management. Protein has something called a higher thermic effect. In other words, it requires the energy to digest, absorb, and metabolize this protein. So you're actually burning just a few more little pieces of energy by digesting and incorporating the protein than you would if you just ate the same number of calories, say, in carbohydrates. Again, a calorie is not a calorie is not a calorie. Different effects in the body depending on what you eat. So protein-rich diets tend to increase your sense of fullness, decrease hunger, and also reduce your overall calorie consumption. Some people have dietary restrictions. So maybe you're a vegetarian or a vegan. So you've got limited sources of protein. Maybe your natural whole foods, which you should always eat, don't have a high concentration of protein. So maybe you can get a pea protein, which is vegetarian, obviously. It comes from peas or some type of soy protein. And that will allow you to keep in your vegetarian regime, but also provide you a concentrated, highly beneficial, highly usable form of protein. And then finally, there's certain medical conditions. Somebody who's malnourished or has a muscle wasting disease, or maybe they're recovering from surgery, they can require this increased protein. Maybe those same people have a hard time eating and digesting whole natural foods such as meat, and therefore these supplements give them this concentrated boost to, to help them out. But it's important to remember that these supplements can be beneficial for many people for increasing their protein intake. They should not replace whole food protein sources in a well-balanced diet whenever possible. So like whole food sources, lean meats, poultry, fish, eggs, dairy, legumes, nuts, they provide a whole variety of essential nutrients, fiber, and other compounds that protein supplements may lack. So a supplement is truly that. It's a supplement to a healthy, balanced, whole, natural food diet. That's important to remember. So what kind of protein supplements are out there? Well, there's 10 fairly common different types. There's a lot of different types of protein food supplements. So let's go down through their popularity as far as their frequency of use, and we'll talk about them. The first one, the most popular, is whey protein. And this is derived from milk. Whey protein is the most popular and widely used protein supplement currently, at least in the U.S. It has a high biological value, rapid absorption, and a rich amino acid profile. The second, also from milk, is casein. Now, casein, unlike whey, is a slow digesting protein. Casein provides a sustained release of amino acids. It's often taken by athletes and people who needing muscle recovery right before bed 
First of all, gives them something, makes sure they're not a little bit hungry. The third is soy protein. It's made from soybeans, obviously, and that's a plant protein that's suitable for vegetarians or vegans or, or anyone. And it is a complete protein. It contains all the essential amino acids. The fourth is pea protein. Now this comes from yellow peas. Now, I don't know why yellow peas, but they make pea protein out of yellow peas. And it's plant-based, of course. It comes from the pea plant. I like to eat peas. I don't know that I've ever eaten yellow peas. I've had yellow lentils, but never yellow peas. This is interesting. And it's, it's hypoallergenic. It's easily digestible. It also is a complete protein. Rice protein is the fifth most popular. Rice protein is hypoallergenic, easily digestible, obviously from plants. It's made from brown rice, and it's often used as an alternative to soy or whey protein for folks with dietary restrictions or allergies. Number six is collagen protein. Now you see this advertised a lot. One nice thing about collagen is you can add that powder to almost anything. I know people who add it to hot coffee. I know people who add it to breakfast cereal with their milk. Now, I personally don't eat breakfast cereal, but you know, it, it's, it's easily dissolved in almost any liquid, has almost no taste, can impart a little bit of a creamy texture to whatever you add it to. For, for many years, when I was making a very complex coffee drink, I would add coconut oil, raw virgin coconut oil, and also collagen protein made a, a slurry in my coffee. I don't do that anymore. I'm just back to heavy cream, but I used to do that for quite a while, especially when I was very active in CrossFit. But collagen protein is derived from animals. It comes from, don't get grossed out here, but it comes from their skin, their bones, and their connective tissues of animals. They process that. They, I don't know, somehow get it into a powder. And it does have a, a high content of amino acids that do support joint health, skin elasticity, and hair and nail growth. So that can be helpful to some. Number seven is hemp protein. Hemp protein is derived from the seeds of the hemp plant, and it has essential fatty acids, fiber, and minerals. And it's great for maybe vegetarians or anyone because it does provide a complete protein profile. Number eight is egg white protein. Pretty darn simple. They take egg whites, they make them into a powder that you can add to things. You can also buy just the liquid egg whites, and some people just make eggs or omelets using egg whites. That's something else people do. That's considered a processed food because, of course, the yolks were separated from the whites. Beef protein. So this can be made from hydrolyzed beef protein isolate, which comes from cows. And it is a high concentration of protein, and it's used by people who obviously would prefer an animal-based protein and also maybe have a lactose intolerance, and they stay away from milk-based proteins. Finally, number 10 is a mixed plant-based protein blend. So that can have pea, rice, hemp, other plant proteins, but it's all plants and is blended in a way to give a very balanced amino acid profile and it helps people who have specific dietary preferences or restrictions and maybe can't eat meat-based products. So these, these rankings and popularities of the various protein supplements can change over time. New, new things come out, new formulations are released, new specialized products, and your taste can evolve over time as well.
So just keep checking, rechecking, make sure you're getting what's best for you. Maybe talk to a registered dietitian, a nutritionist, or someone else with knowledge about protein supplementation. All right, let's take a look at your questions. We did get a question in just yesterday, as a matter of fact, from Steve from Glendale. And Steve is a friend of the show. He's written in a few times, and I always enjoy hearing from Steve from Glendale. So here's his question. Hi, Tom. You often mention that you drink protein shakes. Huh, what a coincidence. This is my comment here, but what a coincidence. We just had this as a topic for today. Let me start over. Hi, Tom. You often mention that you drink protein shakes, for instance, on your drive back from Maine or on a cruise. Do you make your own or do you buy store-bought shakes? My wife and I use whey protein in our BlendJet 2 and add frozen strawberries or blueberries or half a banana. Just curious as to what you drink, Steve. Well, thanks, Steve, for writing in. I certainly appreciate that. So, no, I do not make my own. That would take away from my desire for convenience in this supplement. So I pulled one out of the fridge. I do take mainly a a pre-made protein shake from Walmart, the Equate brand, E-Q-U-A-T-E. It's sold at Walmart. It's their store brand. So it's less expensive than anything else I can find out there. Because when you come down to it, 30 grams of protein, which this has, I'm looking at cost per gram of protein. And they all have artificial ingredients. I don't know of any whey-based protein prepackaged shake that doesn't have something artificial. So I don't know that necessarily one is significantly healthier than the other, so I go on price. And I happen to enjoy this flavor, even though other people really have told me they can't stand it. I drink the chocolate-flavored protein shake, the high-performance protein shake. has 30 grams of protein, has 160 calories, 1 gram of sugar. It's not added sugar. It comes from the milk. And it also has bits of vitamins and minerals, 25 different vitamins and minerals. They look like they're averaging around 20-25% per vitamin or mineral of the suggested daily value. So, I mean, the fact, well, let's see here. It has three grams of fiber. It has three grams of fat. Like I said, obviously 30 grams of protein, 230 milligrams of sodium. But it's easy. It's convenient. It's 11 ounces. It does need to be served cold. Although although I have, like on a cruise ship, if I don't have a fridge, sometimes I have an interior cabin on a cruise ship that does not contain a refrigerator. Pretty basic. But then I just go get a glass of ice and I pour the shake over the ice and have it that way. Otherwise, they're in my fridge here at home, and I just pop one out when I need to. And honestly, I do usually have one almost every day. Not every day, but I would say probably five out of seven days, I will have one of these protein shakes. So, Stephen, hope that was a thorough answer. Hope that helped you. Now, if you would like to ask a question like Steve did, Steve from Glendale, there's two ways. First of all, just send me an email. My email address is Tom at SolvingType2Diabetes.com or you can pop over to the website SolvingType2Diabetes.com and click on Feedback. Fill out that little form, just type in your question or your comment or maybe a suggestion for an upcoming topic and uh, pop that in the feedback box and I will get that as well. I'd be happy to answer your questions, look at your comments and take your suggestions. That would really help me out. The other thing that would really help me, I'm going to ask again, is to please share this episode. 
Really, you, please, take a second, click on the share link, and simply share the URL, the link to this episode with someone that you care about, someone who you think could benefit. That would help me, and I'd appreciate it. So what is next? Next week, I'm going to talk about a topic that I deal with. It's something that I struggle with from time to time. I think there's definitely pros and cons. I want to talk about streaks. Now, I'm not talking about running naked through a football stadium. That's not the streaking I'm talking about. I'm talking about a streak in that you do something repetitively. You try to extend the frequency and duration of a particular activity or something you're doing, something you're eating. You try and do it day after day after day. And I want to talk about the pros and the cons of streaks in solving type 2 diabetes. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast. I hope you found it valuable. Please follow and leave a five-star review as it helps other people find the podcast. By subscribing, you ensure you won't miss the next episode. You can always get a full transcript of the episode at SolvingType2Diabetes.com. There, you will also find the links to leave feedback and links to follow on social media. I'm very interested in hearing from you with comments and suggestions. Thanks very much for listening. Please remember that everything I share is just from my own personal experience and should not be taken as medical or health advice. Please consult your own medical professionals. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only.